0: Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 50, we read this And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs to the holy temple. We're going to have problems this morning with this. Do we have extra batteries? Maybe we've got some battery issues. We can go ahead and try that, and I will grab this while we figure that out. What verse was I on? Who was, who was following along? <laughs> I'm, on verse, uh, I'm on verse 54. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Jesus took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, and Joseph, I'm sorry, took it, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and, t- and, and, and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. All right, let's pray together and let's ask that God would help us as we study His Word. Father, we do ask that, that, uh, you, that you help us this morning. We are unable to mine the wonders of Scripture without this Holy Spirit helping us. So God, I pray that You would help me communicate faithfully and, and uh, truthfully uh, and also powerfully the meaning of this text that we might apply it to our lives, that we might be drawn closer to Christ for His glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. During the Thirty Years' War in Germany, there was a German pastor and his family who were forced out of the town that they lived in. And they uh, went to a village, uh, and there in in the village one night, thank you, babe, in the village, one night, um, his wife broke down uh, just from all of the stress, all of the despair. Uh, she broke down in despair, and um, so he tried to comfort her as best as he could. As they have lost everything in life, and then he went out into the garden where they were staying uh, for uh, to, to be alone, and there he broke down and had his own uh, what he called the darkest moment. of of his life Uh, within a, a few short moments he sensed the presence of God with him and he wrote these words which became a well known German hymn he wrote this he says give to the winds thy fears hope and be undismayed God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears God shall lift up thy head Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time. So shall the night soon end in joyous day. In Christ, we have wave after wave of new hope. during every moment of despair. Let me say that again, because that's an important statement. In Christ, we have wave after wave of new and, let me add another, and renewed hope in all of our moments of despair. Are you hoping in Christ this morning? Are you Waiting on his timing this morning. I want to talk to you today on the title, Effects of the Cross. Effects of the Cross. We need to start with a little English lesson here. Effects and effects. Two different words. Did you know that? Effect is usually um, a, a, a verb which means to change something. To affect something, to change something. Effect, rather, is usually a noun, and it is defined as something produced by an agency or a cause, a result, a consequence. Now, the cross was effective, so that's a fine word. We're not gonna toss the word effective away. It changes something, right? It's effective. But the cross is also. Effective. Uh, there are effects of the cross, which means that there are uh, things, we're going to talk about those things, that are produced because of the cross. I want to talk about the various effects of the cross, and specifically in this text, the immediate effects of the cross. However, we begin in despair. So in verse 50, look at verse 50 there, it says Jesus cried out. That word cried is a word of anguish. It, It means that he screamed at the top of his lungs as loud as anybody could shout. It reminds us of the physical pain that he is enduring on the cross with a loud voice. Now, loud voice is important in that Jesus did not just gasp his way to death normally a crucified victim would hang there for hours just gasping for air and uh, eventually they would pass out and then a couple hours later they would die. Jesus dies with some life still left in him. He's got some strength still. He's not your ordinary crucified victim. He cries out with a loud voice and then it says he yielded up his spirit. That's an active verb, not a passive verb in that His spirit was taken from him, which is usually how we talk about death. But Jesus actively gave it up. He yielded up his spirit, which means that Jesus, even until the moment of his death, was willingly on his own accord, giving his life for you and I. Jesus himself said in John 10, 17 through 18, he said, I lay down my life nobody takes it from me on my own accord I lay it down well then he's buried now on one hand we have utter despair in this passage Joseph uh, a man from Arimathea he's a rich man he's probably a closet disciple of Jesus Christ he's a, set, a part of the Sanhedrin probably has not wanted it to be known that he's a follower of Christ. He now publicly, for the first time, most likely comes out as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He boldly approaches Pilate, asks for the body, which fulfills Isaiah 53:9, which says that Jesus made his tomb among the rich. He buries Jesus into his own new tomb, cut out in the rock. Now, this is not buried in the ground as we do today, but uh, tombs for the wealthy... Uh, which, by the way, very, very rare would a servant or would someone crucified be put into a wealthy man's grave, all right? Just let that remain in your head. Um, this would be more like a rock, uh, a cave that's been cut out of the rock uh, that you kind of climb into. And so Jesus' body is placed there, and then there's, it says there's a stone that's been put in front of the door. Uh, the stone would have been cut out and it would be kind of placed on this, uh, th- this, this track in which you could roll the stone in place. The tomb would be at the bottom of a, of a decline and so it would be fairly easy to put the stone in place and very difficult to get the stone out of place. It would require a number of men pushing it to remove the stone. Not only that but the high priests are still kind of freaking out about Jesus a little bit and they say, you know, I think... Uh, Uh, his his disciples might steal the body, which is what they did accuse uh, them of doing. His disciples might steal the body, so they approach Pilate, and they say, can we seal it up? So Pilate seals it, probably with some kind of wax, and he allows them to take their temple guards and place their temple guards in front of the tomb and guard it for most likely three days. All right, so first, I mean, there's a sense in which we have utter despair, like Jesus is dead. Oh, liberal theologians, they would say that he didn't really die, um, he was just kind of like stunned on the cross and his heart stopped for a moment and came back to life and and, and he just, he kind of rejuvenated in, in the grave. And uh, he didn't ever really die. No, he, he was dead. <laughs> right? there's, there's no way around it. Jesus was dead. And they placed his lifeless body in the grave. Now on one hand I say we should have despair, but on the other hand there is hope built into this passage. First, We see the women. There's an unusual emphasis here on on the women in Matthew. In verse 55, it says that there were women who followed Jesus. There are women who, who ministered to Jesus. This entire time, they've been the ones handing Him a cup. They've been the ones maybe wiping blood from His brow. There are women that have followed Christ all the way to the cross. Verse 61, they follow Him even to His own grave, and there they sit. It says, sitting opposite the tomb in verse 61. Why does Matthew have such an unusual focus on the women? On one hand, we could point out that women were better seen and not heard in this society. Matthew gives women a voice. Matthew elevates women. Matthew shows us that women were the ones that didn't leave Jesus' aside, while all of his male disciples were running, all right? That's, that's here, that's clear, and we can, we can talk about that. But I think the the primary reason that Matthew is talking about the women here in this text is to show us something. If you were to flip to next Sunday's text, which is the resurrection, who are the first witnesses? The women. How do we know that the women knew that they had the right tomb? How do we know that when they come to the empty tomb and he's not there, they're not just mistaken because they don't really know where his body was laid? What is Matthew showing us? I believe Matthew's showing us, he's dispelling an accusation that he knows is already going to come. Matthew is showing us that the women were there. So the women's presence um, at the burial of Christ, in and of itself, is a nod to the resurrection. This is what I'm saying. Hope is kind of built in. You have to peel back the layers a little bit. But hope is built into this passage. We, We also see this with Pilate. Look at Pilate's response. It's, I think it's funny, about, and I think Pilate probably thought it was funny. These chief priests, the high priests, they're still freaking out about Jesus. I mean, he had to go back and like laugh with his wife about that one. Would you believe that those guys were still, he's dead, he's been buried, and they still are afraid of this man. And I think we, see, we, we get some sarcasm in Pilate here, actually. I like Pilate for that reason. As Brian Session knows, I tend to be a little sarcastic sometimes. Pilate says this, he says, i um, have got to find it. He says, "You have a guard of soldiers, so they, they ask if they can have some soldiers, if they can seal it up, protect it. You've got a guard. Got, you've got temple priests. I'm going to let you use your temple priests." And he says, "Go and make it as secure as you can." Like he's basically, I wonder how much sarcasm is in there. Go ahead. Do your best. Maybe Pilate is, maybe what his wife had told him about this man being a righteous man, maybe this is kind of like in his head. I wonder what this righteous man just might do if he said he was going to rise three days later. Go ahead. Make it as secure as you can. You see what I'm saying? There's hope that is built into this passage in the midst of what? In the midst of despair. What we see is that the cross is effective. What I want to do is I want to, I want to go back a little bit in this passage, and I want to look at the immediate effects of the cross. And I want you to see that hope is not just simply hinted at in this passage. Hope is boldly declared in this passage. Listen, in the midst of despair. Are you tracking with me? You've got to stay with me here. Don't sleep on me. Ready? First, let me show you a couple things. First, we have access to God now. Everybody say it together. We have access to God now. The cross gives us access to God now. Tim Keller says... Who dares awaken a king at 3 a.m. asking for a glass of water? Answer his son. We have that kind of access to God. We have that kind of access to God. I remember my principal when I was growing up, he was a scary individual, he was very authoritarian. A little... uh, I'm not going to say anything because this does go online. (laughs) I'll just say I was grabbed by my ear once and I was drugged by my principal across the whole school. I was also kind of a bad kid. Um, But I remember watching his four-year-old son run up to him and grab his leg. I couldn't do that. Who has that kind of access to the father? answer we do we have full um, sonship and daughtership kind of ladies we have full access to the father crazy things happen here in this text as jesus dies one theologian said uh, sometimes things that are recorded seem so odd that they just might actually be true like, nobody's going to make this stuff up. This is too ridiculous to be made up. You would be laughed away in the first century just making this stuff up. Look what happens. There is, there, there is darkness. There is an earthquake. Rocks split. And then he says, and oh, by the way, there was a curtain that was torn in verse 51. What does a curtain torn have to do with an earthquake and rocks split? Why does he take time to mention that a curtain was torn? Well, let me tell you why. In the temple, there was a big curtain that divided the most holy place from the holy place. The most holy place is where God's spirit dwelled. There was an altar there, the very presence of God. The curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. No, I got the backwards. 30 feet high, 60 feet wide. It was a very thick curtain. And once a year, a a high priest would take the corner of it and slide through into the most holy place, and there he would sprinkle the blood of a beast on the altar for his own sins and for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. Why are we told that a curtain is torn from top to bottom? Well, first, there's no way that it could have been a human tearing a 30-foot curtain from top to bottom this was an act of god ancient jewish sources say that 40 years prior to the destruction of jerusalem the door of the temple as it's called was just opened on its own they have no reason uh uh, explanation for it this was an act of god what is god showing us here listen it was unheard of for an ordinary person like you and me to enter the presence of god without the threat of death. You don't just simply barge into the temple and boldly run to the most holy place, diving through this curtain into the presence of God without losing your life. Are you tracking with me? Are you tracking with me? Come on. So what is God showing us here? Why is God splitting the, t- the, the curtain from top to bottom? What he is showing us is simply this. That we now have complete, full access to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Hebrews chapter 9, it, it details this for us it shows us that Jesus blood is the blood that's sprinkled on the altar. Jesus he says in Hebrews 9 is the high priest who goes behind the curtain. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 then we have the application of that. Let us therefore approach with confidence the throne of God. Access to God has been opened through the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, if I am standing in the throne room of God and 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 I'm going to boldly approach the throne of God if I'm going to run with confidence toward God into his most holy place, into his presence, how can I do that without the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you tracking? How how can we, we sing these bloody songs all the time, right? We sing a lot, like If you think about it, some of you are actually new to Christianity, you're new to coming to church, and you might sometimes really wonder, like, man, this is a really bloody religion. They talk about blood a lot. Every song, every other song's got blood in it. Pastors always talking about blood. Why? Why? It's because I can never approach God on my own without blood. I can't just simply go into the throne room of God without the blood of a perfect lamb, without a high priest representing me, but Jesus' blood is the blood that was sprinkled on the altar for on, on my behalf, and Jesus is the high priest who entered in before me, and the curtain was torn apart. And we have access now. Complete, full access to God. My grandfather, uh, as many of you know, passed a couple weeks ago. I was down there in January, and uh, he had Alzheimer's. He was very, very weak, uh, but he was a good pianist in his day. And so he sat down at the piano after months of not playing, and uh, we asked him to play something. And he just started playing the song that we sang, and can it be? And just kind of started banging it out, missing a number of notes. Um. And I remember while, and we were singing, we started singing it together as a family, and while we were singing it, I was thinking, oh, very soon, bold, I approach the eternal throne. That's going to be the reality of my, for my grandfather. How is it that any of us could dare to sing these words, bold, I approach the eternal throne of God? Answer, the blood of Jesus Christ the curtain torn in two. We have full and complete access to Jesus Christ. This means that when we are uh, seeking to evangelize, when we're seeking to share the Gospel with our neighbors, we can actually offer them a relationship with God. Do you understand how radical that is? We're actually offering them entrance into the very presence of God. God. When we invite people to gather with us for church, we have to recognize that as we gather, according to the Scriptures, the Spirit of God is among us. We are right now in the very presence of God. This is why we want you to come to church. Because you can come and experience and enjoy the presence of God in His body. As Christ is with us through His Word. Jesus himself said, little children, come to me. Kids in the room. How is it possible that the kids can come to Jesus? Jesus has made a way for all of us to boldly approach the throne of God. Secondly, we have assurance of resurrection then. All right, so track with me now. We've got um, uh, access to the presence of God now, and we have assurance of resurrection then. And I say then just to indicate, like in the future, one day, someday, you have the assurance that you will be bodily risen from the dead. I took my kids to the mall the other day, and we wanted to go see a movie called Beauty and the Beast. Have you ever heard of it? We didn't go watch it because Jess, mommy, wanted to be with us, and so we didn't watch the movie. But anyway, uh, this would be a better illustration if I actually saw the movie. It's made like something like nine hundred million dollars already in the box office. That's a lot of money. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, 1740 was the original writing of this story as we know it, Beauty and the Beast, though it's got a whole bunch of different forms. Um, And in some ways, Beauty and the Beast is similar to uh, a lot of the other Disney movies, like uh, Sleeping Beauty, like uh, Little Mermaid, all right? Uh, In addition to... (laughs) We'll just sit around and talk about Disney movies today. <laughs> um, in addition to like this theme of like true love, this theme of beauty is more than uh, the skin, uh, you know, some climactic marriage. In addition to all of those themes, really, one one common theme is is that of a curse. Have you ever noticed that? A curse. There's a curse that's been put on the land. There's a curse on the prince. There's a curse on the castle. There's a curse on the the dame. There's a curse. That theme goes all the way back to creation. That theme isn't something that humans came up with. That's something that God came up with. Adam and Eve. Do you remember what was told them? If you eat of this tree, you will surely what? die and death is then the curse come on you got to you got to stay with me i need i need uh I need some responses here okay and they ate of the tree and they were cursed and a curse came on all humans who came through them in jeremiah 11 verse 3 it says cursed is the man who does not heed the covenant We've broken the covenant, the Mosaic law. There is another curse that is placed on humanity. What are we going to do about the curse? Now, this is the greatest love story of all time. This far exceeds beauty and the beast. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Jesus became the curse for us. Revelation 22 Verse 3 says that in that day, in that day when the city is made new, when earth is renewed, it says in that day, there will no longer be any curse. What happened on the cross? The curse was reversed. Jesus absorbed the curse of death in His own body on the tree. Look at verse 52 with me it reads, the tombs were opened. The tombs at his death, probably as a result of the earthquake, in God's providence, the tombs of certain saints were actually opened. And then he gives us this little, he fast forwards to the resurrection. Remember, Matthew often arranges topically, not chronologically. And he, and he tells us that after the resurrection, there were saints in these tombs that actually got up. That were the word is raised, which means it wasn't just bones that got up. They weren't zombies, but they were bodies that were put back together. A new resurrection, the second resurrection. It was it was uh, these bodies that were raised, and then entered into the city. It, it's again, some things are so odd they just might be true. You don't just make this stuff up. It's as if the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ worked together as a trigger so powerful that it jolted to life some saints that had died in the past. And it began not just with the resurrection, but it began with his death. We don't pit the resurrection and the death against each other. They work together in redemption as a trigger. And with the death, in this moment of despair, yes, Jesus is dead, but there are tombs that have been opened. There are graves that have been opened. There is a hope of the resurrection built into this text. So much of what brings us despair in life, I believe, are are anxieties and worries that really hinge on the brevity of life. What I mean by that is, if you take an inventory of all the things that cause you stress and worry and despair, I would say 9.9 times out of 10, it has some connection with the brevity of life. Meaning we're trying to survive. All of life is what? Survival. We're just trying to survive in this fallen world. And so we worry about security and our safety. We, by alarm systems that we can't pay for and now we're worrying about our money, right? We're trying to buy groceries and we're trying to pay rent. We're just trying to make ends meet. What are we worried about? There, We're worried about survival. I mean, that's really what's at the core of it. It's will I survive? Will I have enough to survive? Will I have enough when I can't work anymore to live for another 20 years during retired years and not die early out of, out of hunger? Do I have enough to survive? Even uh, stresses around careers. Where where am I going in life? Who am I? So much of it is just wrapped up in this reality that life is short. But listen, friends graves were opened. Graves were opened. Well, we're, we're, we're worrying about our kids. I'm looking at my own kids. I'm seeing that they're getting bigger. And then I'm realizing, like, man, pretty soon my kids are going to be putting me in the ground. But graves were opened. Worried, maybe you're single, worried about, man, I'm, I'm getting older. Will I ever get married? Will I ever have children? I don't know. Graves were opened. Like, what are we worrying about? What are we having anxieties about? I don't know if I'm going to graduate. I don't know if my grave... The graves were opened. Like all of the things that we worry about and have anxieties over when placed into an eternal perspective are transformed into only hope because graves were opened. It's as if Jesus took death and reversed it. When one died, another came to life. That is called substitution. And that is the hope that we have here in the cross. Lastly, we also, thirdly, have authority. Everybody say authority. authority. You probably have a whole lot of different thoughts that come to mind when you hear the word authority. Maybe mostly negative because people abuse authority. God is not only our authority, but let me finish my sentence. We have authority on our side. Let me show you where I get that. So in verse 54, it says the centurion and those who are with him. So this would be the soldiers who just nailed Jesus to the cross and they've been sitting there watching him die. It says the centurion and those who were with him, when they saw these signs, it doesn't say signs, but that's what they were. When they saw the earthquake and what had took place, God accompanies this miraculous worth with signs so that we might believe. When they saw what took place, look what their response was. Now remember, those who Jesus came to, the religious leaders rejected him as the Son of God, Here, the Gentiles, here, the Roman guard, the Roman soldiers, the ones who crucified him. Look what they say about him. It says they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. That, that is huge. That is a statement of all authority. Listen, for the Greeks, let me tell you about son of God for the Greeks. Coming out of Greek mythology, Caesar was over time considered to be the son of God. Not just a son of God, not just a deity, but he was considered to be the son of God. It would be fine to call someone else a son of God, but, but Caesar is the son of God. You see the difference? For Caesar, that meant that he is supreme. It means that he has supreme power, supreme authority over sickness, over death, over everything. Caesar then was worshipped in many ways. To call someone else the Son of God would be treason. That would be a very, very radical statement for a Roman centurion. To call a man hanging on the cross. But he's seen something. And he can't help but profess what he now believes to be true. Now, for within Judaism, ancient Judaism, Son of God, the, the title was tied up in the story of deliverance. So they believed that there would come a day when the Son of God would come and He would defeat all of the enemies of Israel and He would, uh, in that day He would raise all people and He would judge all people and those who are wicked He would judge into their destruction and those who are righteous He would then bring into a newly renovated creation. Son of God was a massive title. And what we see here is as a a result of these signs that take place, the Roman soldiers that Jesus, by the way, just prayed for. Have you ever caught that before? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Isn't that amazing how quickly God answers prayer sometimes? The Roman soldiers profess that Jesus is the Son of God of God How does a king have authority a King has authority because the king has a position of kingship, right? Meaning the king think about this with me the king might not be the smartest in the land The king might not be the strongest in the land. He might not be the wisest in the land. But because the king is the king, he has what? He has authority. The king has authority because he has a position. And you guys understand how this works. There are people in your life who just for whatever reason, maybe politically or maybe at your job or maybe just relationally, socially, people who have an authority. They are an authority figure in your life. I was chatting this morning with my grandmother um, on Facebook. It's amazing when your 91-year-old grand- year grandmother uses Facebook. So we're chatting with each other. I call her Luli, by the way, to hold another explanation. I'll tell you later. call her Luli. Uh, Luli is one who has a position of authority in my life, who has had especially when I was a child. So my grandmother, she's like this feisty little lady from Connecticut. She's got like New England something in her, and um, and I remember when I when I would be as a child just disrespecting my mother, and you know I had a I had a very uh, powerful <laughs> uh, mouth. That could get myself in trouble, and I was just go on and on, arguing with my mother, disrespecting my mother, and then my grandmother, who she calls me Jaybird. All she would have to do is say she'd walk in the door and she'd say, "Jaybird, I'm done." (laughs) All right, I was popped in the mouth one time by my grandmother. All right, she wielded authority in my life. However, if you just think of ability, I was bigger than her. It wasn't because of her ability, it was because of her position. Now, check this out. This is what we see all throughout Matthew. We're kind of coming to a close of this book, and we see that Jesus has been lifted up as the king. Matthew has this entire time been showing us that Jesus has the position of king. He is the rightful king in your life. And let me show you something else. On the cross, what we see is not only does Jesus have the position of authority, Jesus also has the ability to do what he has to do. He has all strength. He has all power. Oh, the other authorities in the world had nothing on him. His death was effective. His death had the power to bring us to God. His death had the power to give life and to raise the dead and reverse death. His death had the power. There's there's this old song, power in the blood. There's power in the blood. There's wonder-working power in the blood. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary. It gives me strength from day to day. The blood will never lose its power. He has the position of authority and He has the ability of authority. Amen? Amen. Amen. Are you with me? You're allowed to tell me that. (laughs) Listen, the other religious leaders, uh, they, they did not have the power to end life. They tried, they tried to put him on the cross, they tried to kill him, and they did not have the power to end life. The religious leaders did not have the power to bring anybody to God. Caesar did not have the power to awaken the dead. Oh, but Jesus is the Son of God. And he has all power to awaken the dead and to bring us to God. Let me, let me ask you this question. I don't want you to respond. All right, I don't want you to raise your hand. Let me ask you this question. Do you profess that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you profess that Jesus is the Son of God? What that means is is that we look at all of life, right? We look at our relationships, and whatever doesn't look like submission to Christ, we submit. We look at our, our marriages, and whatever doesn't look like submission to Christ, we submit to Christ. We look at our singleness, and whatever doesn't look like submission to Christ, we submit. We look at our free time. Whatever doesn't look like submission to Christ in our free time, we submit that to Christ. We look at the way that we work our jobs and think about our jobs and careers, and Whatever doesn't look like submission to Christ within that, we, we, we submit all of that to God. We submit the whole of our being to God. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Is Jesus Christ the authority in your life? And let me say this. I'm just going to close here. But the connection with hope and despair only... Uh, makes any sense if Jesus is the Son of God. Meaning, if we reject Jesus' lordship and his kingship, then we can't talk about hope in the midst of despair. Hope in the midst of despair, meaning he brings you to God, he is your high priest, he sprinkles the blood on your behalf, is connected with the fact that we profess along with the soldiers that truly this man is the Son of God. Now let me just turn this and encourage you and comfort you. The reason that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God is because God has given you the gift of faith. It's because God has opened your eyes to the Savior. It's because God has been so kind to you To graciously wake you up to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has all authority to forgive your sins. Friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that? We're not going to talk about what happened last week. We're not going to talk about what happened last night. What I'm asking you is this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive your sins and to bring you into the presence of God? To reverse death for you? Standing in the throne room of God is your initial response now with the blood of Christ, the high priest who's went before you to boldly run to the throne of God and claim the crown of Christ, my own. I hope that's your response. Let's pray together. Father, as we respond in faith to this message, I pray that we would boldly claim the grace of Jesus Christ. That we would not take advantage of His grace. That we would not spit in His face. That we would not make a mockery of His name as we try to cling to the cross, yet deny Him as the authority of our life. God, we recognize that it's it's all tied together. The only reason that Jesus can be who He is in my life, the only reason He can be my Savior, the only reason that He can forgive me of my sins, is because He is my authority. God, let us turn to Christ. Help us to look to him and to trust the blood that has been sprinkled on the altar for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.